So often we start the story at that moment of violence when a young black person comes into contact with law enforcement. And it's usually where there's a dead black person, frankly. And there's all of this stuff that predates that moment and all of these points of contact that we don't talk about that are equally violent. That's WNYC's Kai Wright, host of the narrative podcast, Caught the Lives of Juvenile Justice. Hello, and welcome to another episode of On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright, and I run the prizes department at Columbia Journalism School. I am joined today, as always, by my friend and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen, who runs the DuPont Columbia Awards. Hello there, Lisa. Hi, Abby. So before we get into today's episode, let's talk about the DuPonts. Since our last episode, submissions for this year's awards have closed, And in these unprecedented times, we did something we've never done before. That is, we extended the deadline because reporters kept telling us they were just overwhelmed keeping up with the news and all the work that goes into that. Yeah, it's been really sobering to hear how journalists who normally enter have been facing these incredible obstacles to get their reporting done putting themselves really in harm's way to cover protests across the country and the COVID-19 pandemic. And then, you know, working on home laptops to edit and even broadcast from there. It's just been incredible. Right. So now we're working hard to keep the judging on schedule. But we still wanted to make sure that you, our faithful podcast listeners, had an episode this month. So we are bringing another one out of our vault. Yeah, we're bringing it back to May of 2019 when WNYC's Kari Pitkin and Kai Wright sat down with Professor Sally Herships, who runs the audio program at the J School. We were so lucky to have them come and talk to some of our students about their podcast, Caught, which we had just earlier that year given a DuPont. Right, and we thought this would be an especially good episode to bring back now because of all the necessary conversations happening right now around the criminal justice system and the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah, and I'll say one of the things that I really liked about this series, and this is something that Kai makes a point of mentioning in this episode, is that we really get to see the juvenile justice system through the eyes of the young people who are experiencing it firsthand. You get to hear their voices and you really feel like you meet them as people. So in the spirit of meeting the show's characters and hearing their voices, we decided to incorporate bits and pieces of the show into today's episode so you can hear some of them for yourself. We'll kick off this episode with one of those clips featuring a young man known as Z. And as always, this is an edited conversation. I'm a quiet person, but after seeing and being in so many different types of facilities. I done did everything in the book. Getting restrained 15 times in one day I did that. Fighting, all that, turning up. So I don't want to go through that type of stuff no more. I got a question about that. How does that affect you after going through that all day? After you get restrained 15 times, how that make you feel? For me, I don't know. It don't really make me feel bad at all. It's like a high, quick high adrenaline rush. Yeah, it sounds crazy, but I get I get a relief. Like imagine having months and months of trapped up anger and stuff never being expressed in your system without getting it out. How would that make you feel? 
So in the series caught, we hear um, from kids like this. This was Z, right? Um, the tape is gripping. It's touching. The series was incredibly extensive, both in geography, topic, and spanned decades. How did the idea for this series come about? We've always been interested in the idea of reporting or working with young people who are in detention in some capacity. And there are also a lot of logistical barriers to that, as you can imagine. Um, our, typically, a young person we work with will work with us for a minimum of 100 hours, I would say. And that's just not very realistic if you want to get inside of a facility. But we learned about this initiative in New York because there's, you know, there's a movement to close down Rikers and to get young people out of Rikers. And as a part of that movement, uh, New York opened this close to home facilities, which the idea being that it was kind of a in communities and in more of a like a residential setting. And they were being run by nonprofits. And so initially we were thinking of this as a very traditional Radio Rookies workshop where we would go in and then some young people would produce stories and we would have these one-off stories. What ended up happening is that these were really new facilities and um, at a few other facilities, not the one where we were, some a lot of kids were going AWOL and there started to be a lot of bad press about um, these close to home facilities. And um, so we got kicked out, not because of what anything we were doing, but they just said, we can't have a, you know, we know you're WNYC, you can't be in here. And they just shut it down, you know, just bam, gone. No chance to say goodbye to the young people, nothing. We had invested a lot of time and we had developed a, Courtney had developed a relationship not only with Z, who ended up being a central character, but um, also his mother. And then we became a part of this narrative unit at WNYC, and suddenly it was like, maybe there's something much bigger here. Maybe there's an opportunity to tell a lot of different stories. There's been a big conversation happening about mass incarceration. Less of it has been about the juvenile justice system. And so we went through a process of pitching it to WNYC as a larger podcast. I have to admit, when I started listening, I didn't start at the beginning. I dove in. And one of the first pieces that I listened to is about a kid named honor. The day of the incident, it happened at 1 something, like 1.30 in the morning on Friday the 13th. It's the anniversary of when Honor found out he had leukemia. And his mom says he hates this day. His older sister, who's 22 and a key character in this story, comes home. And she and her mom start arguing. They have a history of getting in physical fights, and this time, the mom calls 911. They each claim that the other started getting physical first. The phone falls to the ground. The 911 operator still on the line, listening. Honor's in the kitchen. He was waiting for his pancakes. There's a knife stand near the sink, right there, next to him. And he pulls one out. It was a really difficult story, and I had to stop a couple of times and then take a little break and listen again. And Honor, in case you haven't heard it, is involved in a pretty violent crime. And one of the things I was curious about is how do you, as a reporter, balance uh, the fact that these sources are kids, but they've also been involved in potentially brutal or violent crimes? How do you both protect them as kids and as sources, but also trust them. I mean, that story in particular, 
we spent a lot of time uh, going back and forth on what what is the best way to handle it. And not just journalistically, but also just a lot of, we had a lot of dispute amongst us about what we thought of Otter's story. So part of the story is that in, in the course of a domestic dispute, Honor does very serious violence to his sister. Uh, and so Sarah spent an enormous amount of time trying to make sure that we had his sister in the story, and she ultimately did not want to be in the story, um, but we were able to represent her point of view in it. So not easily is the answer, you know? I mean, we just, we, we really hashed it out, um, but we did all of that hashing rooted in very traditional journalism. You know, I mean, all of the storytellers, all the reporters on this series are veteran newsroom reporters, you know? So Sarah Gonzalez, who reported that piece, has been reporting difficult stories of all sorts uh, for a long time. And so she didn't assert any facts that she could not independently verify. I mean, you know, she was in conversation with the lawyers. She was at court often. She was looking at the court records. So that on that end of it, it's, it's just traditional reporting. You don't say things you don't know. And you mentioned, you use the word sympathy or sympathetic, and that was another question I had because the series does feel, it, it's meant to be sympathetic to kids. It wasn't so much about being sympathetic to them as much as it was about, this is a valid perspective on this problem that we do not hear from. There has been this conversation about criminal justice reform. It's been building. And so often, the moment of violence when a young black person comes into contact with law enforcement. Um, and we start the story at that moment of violence, and it's usually where there's a dead black person, frankly. And there's all of this stuff that predates that moment, and all of these points of contact that we don't talk about that, that are equally violent. And so a goal of one of the series was to, sh to be in that space, sympathy or not, and secondly, to do that in a way that allowed us to see it from the perspective of the person encountering the system. And so, so much of our criminal justice conversation, everybody gets a seat at the table of the conversation other than the people that we've labeled criminals. And maybe a good example of that would be the story of, was it Willie, the, the kid who perpetrated some pretty violent crimes on the, on the subway? And one of the moments when you're describing him that's stuck in my head, I don't want to misquote it, but was I think a, a scared, a scared kid, right, who needed help? They sent me to a place that was run by jailbirds. You know what I'd done? When I got back out into the community, I, I tried to worse a crime, but they had told me what they'd done. Then I got into more trouble. Willie Boskett. His crimes changed everything for kids in criminal justice. The political reaction was swift and extreme, and it ricocheted through states around the country. Remember Z, the young man we introduced in the first two episodes? To understand why Z and thousands of youth like him face adult criminal charges today, we're going to look back at Willie Boskett, at his childhood, his extreme and atypical violence, and at the specific challenge he presented to the juvenile justice system. Kari reported this story, and she can talk about it, but there, yeah. this is a particular case. Like, Kari and I have never come to, like, the same opinion necessarily about Willie Boskett. Like, well, so just for background, Willie, um, this is a case in the 70s. He murdered two people on the subway in New York, and it became sort of a, a, a turning point in juvenile justice because then there was this sense of how can you treat this young man? I think he had just turned 15 as a juvenile when he committed this heinous crime, and it was a heinous crime. Um, but the entire juvenile justice system had 
on paper, maybe not in practice, there had been an idea that young people are, you know, we should think of this as a system of reform and people are redeemable and they are at their core, this is, you know, not punishment, but actual, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna help people. And this was kind of a turning point in the thinking around that, but um, Willie was a very complicated character for sure. And, and, and probably a psychopath. And he also did need help. That's the biggest, you know, the biggest thing that I learned in all of this, honestly, is that what really so many of these stories are actually about is mental health issues. And Willie is just a really stark example of it, you know, and it's because his mental health issues were profound and led to profound violence, you know. But they're on a spectrum with what was in almost every story um, where there was a young person who had mental health problems and needed support and care. And the difference between that person and someone who has more privilege in their life, who might be able to find a way to get that care, um, was that they got that care only once they encountered the criminal justice system. And that's a, uh, a fundamental flaw. And I'm, I'm curious to know, what kind of feedback have you gotten from listeners one of the pieces of feedback that does trouble me that I've heard is is that it's 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 how hard of a listen it is, you know, because as a journalist, I don't want to lead people down dark alleys. You know, I want to lead people to a place of I can fix this. I can. What is my role? What is my accountability in this? And but it's also that's true. It's a really dark alley. Like it's a, it's a tough story. Did you have a lot of discussions also about how many details to? disclose. Can you maybe talk a little bit about some of those discussions or arguments you had? Yes, we had a lot of conversations about that. Um, I think it was important, especially in something like Honor's story, which was the way we got access to his story was through, it was sort of a, it was a kind of alternative to incarceration program that he had gotten sort of funneled into. So he didn't end up serving any time. He had, he had to commit to a certain amount of this therapy, and then we were given access to recording that process. So given that we're looking at, you know, this is this alternative to incarceration, I think it was really important then to say, well, well, what was it that he did that would have made some people think that he should be incarcerated? There was tape we did not use, but we needed people to really understand the violence of that, you know, he stabbed his sister, and people needed to understand what that meant. We're setting aside a debate about guilt or innocence. This isn't a debate about whether people committed crimes or not. So part of it was we didn't want to get into that. The point is, what do we do now that this has happened when we're dealing with children? So these are kids who are some of whom have been caught in a snowball of bad circumstances, bad luck. They've been implicated in these crimes. And it sounds like a lot of the interactions they've had with authority figures have not been positive ones. How do you go about developing trust with that kind of a source? especially when they're asked to share such sensitive information with potentially huge impact on their lives. We decided to work with certain reporters because we also thought that those were people who could build that trust and had a track record of doing that. So I'm thinking of Cindy Rodriguez, who reported on a young woman who was in the system. She just decided, I'm going to go spend some time um, at court and just kind of see who I can meet. And then she met this young woman's lawyer. And so it was through that introduction, I think, that she was able to kind of initially trust Cindy. But then there was a lot of just like, you know, going and getting coffee and, you know, not necessarily going on tape, but just checking in and, you know, taking her out for a, you know, a lunch, or, you know, kind of over time sort of building a real, a real relationship. Um, and it's, I mean, the 
take home there is time spent. You know, I mean, it's there's no secret sauce here. So to use Cindy Rodriguez's example, I mean, she had been she's been covering this system, child welfare system for what, 15 years, <laughs> you know, um, you can't parachute into the relationships. To me, there are a couple of things that are just always true. One, pe people are very rarely asked <laughs> and, you be, and people are actually quite happy to sh share with you if you are genuinely asking, you know, I mean, to somebody to sit down with you and say, something terrible happened to you and I wanna hear you tell me, I'm willing to listen, you know. And you're not there to get a quote and you're not there to get your thing and to move on and you sit with them and you come back and you show that you actually care. And then lastly, like if you share something of yourself, you're dealing with a human being. And so you can't be the like, well, I'm here to get your story and I'm objective and you just, I got you have to be like, okay, I'm a human too. You know, that when you said that, that made me feel this. You have to be, share, you know. What's your responsibility as a journalist when the story is done? There's no real easy answer to that. Every journalist I know deals with that differently. I personally walk a fine line with it, you know, um, because part of the truth of our work is that it is exploitive. One of the reasons people are sharing with us is they believe that I can help them. I might be able to help the next person by telling their story, but nine and a half times ten, I can do nothing for them specifically. And I do everything I can to be clear about that and encourage people to think of themselves as whistleblowers, even if they're telling their personal story about something that is not what we would traditionally think of as whistleblowing. That's the relationship I try to develop with people. And so I do try to walk that relationship back at the end because I don't want to create the impression that, I, that you can turn to me for help because I, I can't help. My question is about distribution or finding audiences. When you're doing this kind of work, I know some of these pieces or stories aired on WMYC as well, or was it specific to the podcast? And I think you guys also had some live events. Like what goes into finding an audience? And how do you conceive, how, do you, how does that frame, how does that influence your workflow or yeah. as you're even doing the reporting? So there were a bunch of different things that we thought about one, I think, is partnerships are critical because you can then engage with audiences that are engaged with those partner organizations. We're lucky to sit in a newsroom of a nonprofit news organization with a mission. And so no one was counting our downloads. You know, um, I mean, we care. We wanted we want an audience, obviously. But we're able to think about our audience uh, not just about like how many downloads we got, but how many places are we able to put this information in front of. So with our partnerships, we're able to say, okay, we want the Roots audience is a place we want to have this conversation with. And so let's commission a series of essays that are going to go in the Root. And that may or may not lead people to click back to the podcast. That's not the point. The point is that like we did this reporting and it got out. We did a series of shows for the air. We know pretty clearly that our radio audience and our podcast audience are two totally different audiences, that putting something on the radio does not lead to people listening to the podcast. I think, you know, when you're dealing with kids is always like a whole bigger kettle of worms. But you're dancing on this line of you need them, you need their access, you need them to tell these really tough stories. But on the other hand, they're kids. But like what considerations do you have about how well they understand what talking to you is going to mean for them? It's a great 
Great question, and one we often think about with radio rookies because they often do tell incredibly personal stories. Um, I mean, first of all, we used either nicknames or pseudonyms because, you know, luckily they are juveniles and almost all of them, their records will be in some capacity wiped clean. And so the last thing we want is for them to be 25 applying for a job and have this be the first thing that comes up, bless you. And um, we did that regardless of yeah, what they wanted. What, oh, yeah, 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 100%. Um, but in terms of understanding what it means, I think we definitely would at times play them stories so they would at least know what the form is. But being able to understand this is the audience it will connect to, I mean, you can, we say it, but I don't know how much that always penetrates. I think having people visit the station, if that was possible, also usually helps because you walk in and it's, you know, feels like a radio station. It's a real thing. It's not just me with my little equipment. I do actually explicitly sit people down and say, the outcome of this is unlikely to be that I'm gonna fix the situation you're in. Like, I do have that conversation. It, 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 we, this work, it, it, I, I often say this, you know, the work we do, there is just, as journalists, like on some level, is exploitive. Um, and, and that's why then, and I make that point, because that is why then we have an ethical standard to not just be trying to entertain people. That is why it is not sufficient. It cannot be that I have asked you to do this just so that I can get an emotional response from somebody that they're going to get a, have a good fun story told. That, that is, to me, horrific. I've been doing some reporting within, you know, child welfare system. And when you go to caseworkers or different people who are in charge but stuck in a bureaucracy, is that something that you had to deal with where you had very nice caseworkers or heads of agencies that were willing to help you, but then, you know, that you just had to go through all of these levels of like getting permission from this person and this person. Uh, it didn't happen so much in this that I know of. It happens routinely. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's just part of I mean, it did in terms of getting access to the close to home facility. Right, it, right. it was a lot of work to get all, I mean, I remember multiple, many people involved conference calls with different ACS people. And so it was just sort of chipping away and kind of building trust with them. And of course, then that was quickly shattered. But it did get us in there for a spell. So it was worth it. Um, but yeah, we've encountered that a ton with rookies because there have been times where there are things we want to record. And, you know, and it's interesting because young people actually do have a right to say they want to be interviewed. And a lot of times places like the Department of Ed or other places want to kind of insert that, that they can't consent to that, but actually, I don't know exactly at what age that changes, but teenagers are not, um, they're allowed to say that they want to speak to a reporter. And did you have any stipulations from WNYC like a certain time limit or you, they kind of gave we you had free reign? We a fair amount of flexibility in terms of length, I would say. Um, I don't, I mean, if it had gone really long. I mean, we were the, we, yeah, were we were the deciders. We were the deciders yeah. there. Yeah, there wasn't, but there has been a shift now to think of things in us, in, you know, to go shorter. Yeah, I mean, there, as the... We went a little crazy, I think, in terms of length. Well, certainly U.S. anxiety, we went a little crazy, you know? Um, but but it, and it's not good, you know? Like it no, just, that was not a brag. We're more editorially driven by like, ah, that's too long and we're being lazy and we're tired and so we've stopped editing and we need to keep editing. Um, there is, you know, we get, I, I wouldn't, not by any means requirements, but advice from the data teams who have 
spun out mini shows saying, well, here's what we can tell you works and what doesn't work, you know, and one of the things is clear about length being in the 25 minute realm uh, is what people listen to. Um, so we're trying to hit that, but nobody's telling us we have to, you know, um, we just, we want listeners, so. I'm just curious about solutions journalism. Did you think about that in the reporting, Like, Solutions journalism is the rage. Should we incorporate you know, an action item for our audience? You did. So we talked about that a lot on this, and it was hard. It was hard because the solutions aren't clear. You know? I mean, part of the challenge is that we'd say, we were saying, the juvenile justice system. No, there are systems. Even when we would call the Vera Institute in these different places and say, how would you they'd say, are you kidding me? You know, these are there are hundreds of different systems that you're looking at, and each of them have very different sets of standards. We are not going to get to a solution on this as long as the people who we have decided are criminals, we're not thinking about them, and they're off in the corner, and the rest of us are figuring out what the solution is. You know, and so part of the built-in solutions in this series is saying, let's hear from the people who are experiencing this so that we can accurately define the problem. Thank you again. Thank you, guys. Thanks to Kai Wright and Kari Pitkin for taking the time to give great advice to our students. Now, Lisa, I understand you have some updates for us. Yes, I reached out to Kai and Kari, and I got some information about a, a few of the people mentioned in the episode. Z, unfortunately, remains in prison, but he still calls the close-to-home facility he was staying in when Cot was being reported, and he's told them that he still prefers isolation, and he struggles with the impulse control issues that he describes in the podcast. That is so sad to hear. His story really stayed with me. And what about Honor? Well, for Honor, we have some better news. Uh, he graduated from high school in August, and last October he was sentenced to four years probation. Something else about Honor that comes up in Cot is that he was recovering from leukemia, and I'm happy to report that he is healthy and in remission. Mm, I'm really glad to hear that. Thanks for that. Kai and Kari have kept busy too. They're both working on a number of new shows. Right now, Kai is hosting the latest season of the United States of Anxiety, which besides being incredibly relevant today, is a show that, as the description says, is about the unfinished business of our history and its grip on our future. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. And it was produced by J-School grad, Christina Shaman. We also had production assistance from another grad, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And as always, our production coordinator is Lauren Marigildo-Santos. Our music is by Dylan Nowick. Follow us on Twitter at Columbia Journ. Until next time. <laughs>